0: The 4th Watch starts now. You're listening to Omega Frequency with BDK on the 4th Watch Radio Network.
1: listening to omega frequency. This is a podcast about the beginning of the end. I'm your host, BDK. This is Bride Bootcamp lesson 6, A Tale of Two Churches. Welcome to Omega Frequency everybody. Omega Frequency is dedicated to encouraging and equipping the Remnant Bride of Christ and proclaiming the return of Yeshua the Messiah as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is your first time checking out the podcast, and thank you so much for taking the time to download this week's episode. I hope that it's going to be a blessing to you. And if you're a returning listener, then thank you so much for coming back and supporting the podcast. If you've enjoyed the episode, You can listen to new episodes when they air on Mondays by subscribing for absolutely free on iTunes, or you can listen on demand anytime you want by visiting our podcast archives over at OmegaFrequency.com. And if iTunes is your preferred way of listening to Omega Frequency, would you please consider leaving us a rating and an honest review in the iTunes store? This helps make our podcast more visible to first-time listeners who are searching for end times truth. We are also blessed to be part of the Fourth Watch Radio Network. If you visit fourthwatchradio.com, you're going to be able to check out a wide variety of episodes that cover paranormal and prophetic topics from a biblical perspective. Now, today's episode is Lesson Six of Bride Bootcamp, and if you're new to the show, Bride Boot Camp is a series of monthly teaching lessons from a spirit-filled viewpoint. Our mission is to equip the remnant Bride of Christ in this prophetic hour. So if you want to hear more Bride Boot Camp, you can simply visit OmegaFrequency.com and click on the navigational link entitled Bride Boot Camp, and there you can listen to all of these teaching lessons. So we just finished our first series in Bride Boot Camp. It was five lessons long. And it was called The Mission. And we started that series with Lesson 1, which was called The Living Witness. In that lesson, we discussed how the church is more than a building or a ministry in a physical location. The church is actually individual redeemed saints of God. We are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Now, in cities and towns across the world, there might be congregations or assemblies of those believers but for all intents and purposes, we have been called out of this world. We are the ecclesia. Now, we were called out for a purpose and a mission. We are to be living witnesses to this world that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, that he saves, he delivers, and he heals, that he is alive forevermore, and he is coming soon to rule and reign. As we transition now to our second series entitled Spirit-Filled Discipleship, I want to remind you that in the first lesson, we investigated why Jesus was calling disciples and what his message was to the church living in the end times. We see that Jesus was walking amongst the lampstands in the book of Revelation. Those menorahs or lampstands represented those seven churches of Asia Minor And they were basically oil-based lamps. And oil in lamps always represents the Holy Spirit. And it always is indicative of spiritual life. Basically, what Jesus was doing was he was investigating the spiritual life and health of those churches one by one. He was seeing if they were living out the mission of being faithful, living witnesses. If you read each of these letters to the churches... He is basically saying, I am judging you against myself. Do you love what I love? Do you act like I act? Or do you tolerate in your midst what I would never tolerate? Basically, he's saying, when the world sees you, are they seeing an accurate testimony of who I am? After all, that's so important. We must represent Jesus accurately because that's what witnesses do. They testify to the truth and they testify accurately. And living witnesses actually do more than that. They testify with their very lives, the truths that they seek to become. This is the reason why Jesus did something very interesting 2,000 years ago. He chose a core group of people or disciples and he mentored them and trained them in the field. Now, this was a rabbinical tradition. The disciples of a rabbi followed their teacher and master everywhere he went, and they learned directly from him and partnered with him in his ministry. Basically, Jesus was producing ministers that would be his ambassadors. He was replicating his ministry in them and through them. Then before he goes up into heaven, he's like, I'm coming back as king of kings. And at that time, this spiritual kingdom was, will also become my earthly kingdom. But until that happens, know this, the ones who will be granted access to this new earthly kingdom in Jerusalem will be those who are citizens of this current spiritual kingdom. So go out, preach the gospel, populate this spiritual kingdom, and make more disciples. Keep replicating my ministry through people so that I will always have an accurate living witness on the earth. Now today we're going to start our series on spirit-filled discipleship by looking at two of the churches Jesus was investigating in the book of Revelation. These two churches, more than any other in my opinion, really outline the two key foundational qualities Every disciple must possess and start with if they are to be successful disciples or followers of Christ. First, we must love Jesus and the things that he loves with all of our hearts and that love can never grow cold. Secondly, we must be willing to patiently endure persecution from a world that is spiritually the enemy of Christ. My hope today is that as we study the church at Ephesus and the church at Smyrna, we will let the mirror of God's word show us the state of our hearts, because as sure as Jesus is still calling out disciples from amongst this world to serve him, he is also still walking amongst the lampstands of his churches, checking on their spiritual health. Join me now for Lesson 6, A Tale of Two Churches. Now, all seven churches were under the persecution of the Roman Emperor Domitian. He was the same person who banished John to the prison island of Patmos, and they were persecuted for three basic reasons. First, they were on-fire, spirit-filled missionaries. Now, in the early church, to become a Christian was a very radical thing. When a person became a follower of Yeshua, they were not content to keep their faith to themselves. They believed in reaching the lost, healing the sick, casting out devils, and starting revivals. Acts 17.6 says this about the radical church. These are they that have turned the world... Upside down. Second, they believed that they were citizens of a heavenly kingdom and not the earthly kingdom of Rome. Christians were persecuted because they demanded absolute and total obedience to the king of kings and not to Caesar. As a matter of fact, one verse later in Acts 17, 7, we see why they were turning the world upside down. It said, they are all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Yeshua. Third, they refused to bow to heathen idols. When an emperor issued a proclamation that people were to worship a certain god, they bowed down or else. But Christians didn't do that. True followers of Yeshua were not afraid of death. They felt that there was no greater privilege in all the world than to identify with their Messiah, even if it meant being crucified like him. As a matter of fact, it was not uncommon for rows of Christians to be hanging from crosses that were lit on fire, and they did this so the Romans could see the roadways in the dark. Now, when the churches received their copy of the book of Revelation, all of the seven letters were there. One church group could see what was going on in another church group, not just their own. In the same way, we can look at these letters and gain spiritual insight from them, just like we can from reading any of the epistles that make up the New Testament. Remember, we are the church of the living God, not only corporately but spiritually. And these letters address seven different spiritual conditions, which mankind is prone to. And whatever condition that these congregations were in, whether they were righteous or disobedient, God still loved them. He reached out to them with words of encouragement. Now, all seven letters included the same five elements, a description of Yeshua, the Messiah, congratulations for doing the things that pleased Yahweh and glorified his name, All of these congregations, except for two, received rebuke when God wanted to bring some sort of correction. And after each rebuke, God brings encouragement by showing them what they can do to right their wrong. And lastly, he always gives them a promise, a reward for those who overcome their weakness. Now, as we go through each of the letters individually, remember to look for all these five elements. Now, Revelations 1-2 says this, Unto the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Now, the first thing we see is that Yeshua is holding the churches safely in his right hand of blessing. He is walking in the midst of the seven menorahs. And this tells us that God desires to be surrounded by the ones he loves. He is not a God who exists in a vacuum. He is a lover looking for a lover. The second thing we see is that John is writing this letter to the leader of the Ephesian church. And this is not John's message. He is just the secretary. This is Yeshua's message. And this is what is on God's heart. And he is speaking to a specific group of believers who face specific challenges by living in this city. Now, Ephesus had a population of 250,000 people, which was huge back then. Ephesus meant desirable, and it truly was a desirable place to live. If the Roman Empire could be likened unto America, then Ephesus would be its New York City. It was a melting pot of nationalities. Jews, Gentiles, Greeks, and Romans all called this place home. And it derived its greatness from two sources, commercial trade and religion. It was a port city and trade from all parts of the known world, flowed through there. It was home to one of the world's largest libraries, and it was an intellectual center of the world. It had one of the seven ancient wonders of the world there, the Temple of Artemis, who was their fertility goddess, and it could accommodate 24,500 people. Now, in this temple, they would burn incense and play flute music. They practiced sex magic and engaged in sexual orgies. Now, there was also a huge town brothel. This place made the modern-day porn industry look like Little League. Over the top, sexual Immorality was a big part of this economy. Now, the temple of Artemis was not only a worship center but it was a banking headquarters also. It was where the merchants would bank your money or give out loans, and the temple would receive its interest. Meat was sold here, and part of that meat was sacrificed unto idols and To be in any position of authority in the city, you had to at least take part in the one day a year where the celebration of Artemis happened. There was a parade where they would take their idols and dip them in the river and restore Artemis' virginity back to her. Then the celebration would culminate in an all-night orgy in the temple. There was also a huge town market called the Agora. Here goods from around the known world were sold and traded. It was the center of life in Ephesus. Imagine the Mall of America times ten there were three entrance gates and at each one of these gates there was a station where you would take a pinch of incense and drop it into a bowl of fire in honor and worship of the roman emperor if you didn't do so it would affect your good standing in the agora you would not get any deals or discounts you would be charged a higher tax and you could have restrictions placed upon you if you were selling something sometimes you would not be allowed entrance at all A member of the Christian church would have to choose between the love of money or the love of God in a very real way. If you wanted to be a Christian, you had to realize that you may not be able to hold positions of authority, or your buying or selling in the agora might even become very limited. You may not even be able to get the quality meat and food to sustain your family's health, or even to be able to bank freely or receive loans. Not only did the Christians face physical challenges, but they faced demonic ones also. There was a temple called Tidimus, where the shamanic priests and oracles would speak for the gods, and they were fortune tellers. They practiced divination by cutting open animals and watching how their entrails would slide out. They sold enchantments, and many demonic miracles happened here. Sorcery was a way of life and a big part of their economy. Before John became the bishop of the seven churches, we see that the Apostle Paul was the one who founded the original church at Ephesus. It was in his letter to the Ephesians where he reminded the believers to put on the full armor of God to fight against the real powers that be in the city, not the government, but the demonic rulers in heavenly places. In the book of Acts, we read how Paul went down to the town square daily and preached about Yeshua the Messiah. He boldly fought against these demonic powers. It says in Acts 19, 11, and 12 that God wrought special 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 miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. So basically he stuck to the Yeshua School of Ministry plan. We read in Matthew ten, seven and eight, as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the leopards, raise the dead, and cast out devils. Freely you have received Freely give. It is so sad to see how far the church has strayed from this ministry model. It's as if we don't believe that the same evil forces that were in power back then are not in power now. We see the result of this spirit-filled revival was the birth of the church in Ephesus. And it was so powerful that those who practiced the magical arts brought their books and burned them. And the books alone were valued at 50,000 silver pieces. Now the sale of silver shrines began to fall off and the silversmiths caused an uproar. And in retaliation, it became even more difficult for Christians to participate in the economy. Now you may ask, how did the church survive and even thrive? in these conditions? Well, we read in Acts 2.44-47, through 47, this of the early church, and all the believers were together and had all things in common, and they sold their possessions and their goods, and they shared them with all men, as every man had need. And they continued daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking of bread from house to house. And they did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved. You see, they believed in the power of community. They believed in sharing what they had because it was all a gift, anyways. They believed that Yeshua would provide what they needed to survive. Give us this day our daily bread was something more to them than a line in the Lord's Prayer. They stood on the promise of Revelations 2 1. They believed that they were part of the ones that Yeshua held in his right hand of blessing. Verses 2 and 3 say this I know thy works and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst spare them which are evil, and how thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, but hast found them liars, and hath borne, and hath patience, and for my name's sake hath labored, and hath not fainted. We see that this body of believers faithfully worked to expand the kingdom of God by winning the lost to Yeshua the Messiah, and they were a church that was mature enough to discern false doctrine, Paul's final warning to the church at Ephesus before he left them was this. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. And we see that they did the things that Paul asked of them, because in verse 2 it says, And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not. So who are these false apostles? Second Corinthians eleven thirteen through 15 says this, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ, and no wonder. For Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing that his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose ends will be according to their works. A further warning was issued to the Galatians. Galatians 1 8 says this But even if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached, let him be accursed. And John takes it one step further. In 1 John 4 1, he says this. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they be of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. You see, not only could the Ephesians discern false doctrine, but they would expose those who taught it so that no one else would be deceived by them. They were following a teaching of Paul the Apostle who founded their church. Romans 16:17 says this, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. Now the Bible explicitly teaches that one of the signs of the last days would be the explosion of false teachers and pastors. And we are to publicly mark them as evil and warn people in no uncertain terms not to follow them. And we fail to do this for three basic reasons. Number one, these teachers along with society have conditioned us not to judge. And they will even quote Matthew 7, 1 where it says, Judge not that ye be not judged. But they seem to gloss over the fact that Yeshua also taught in John 7:24. Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. You see, we are not to judge on appearance alone or from a place of hypocrisy, but we are to judge and we are to judge righteously. We do this when we check out what people teach and compare it to the righteous word of God. We do this in a spirit of love so that people will not be infected with the poison of sin because it only takes a little poison to kill someone. Let me ask you a question. If I had a bottle of water, And put one small drop of a deadly poison in it. Would you drink it? Well any sane person would say no. But what if I said hey there's 16 ounces of water in this bottle. And there's only one tiny drop of poison. The answer would still be no. I don't care how much clean water there is. It only takes one deadly drop. To make it unclean. How much more deadly is sin and false doctrine? Because it only takes one drop of false teaching to corrupt the church. If we believe this, we would move in love to warn people. The second reason we fail to do this is that we are afraid to offend someone. For the most part, no one wants to be confrontational. I mean, let's face it, there are consequences for being offensive. Ministers are often afraid that they will lose their congregations if they speak out about certain sins or certain doctrines. Or worse yet, political issues. And here's one that hits close to home. If you podcast, you might lose listeners. But the Bible teaches us not to be selfish, but selfless. Lastly, we are afraid that our voices will not make a difference. You see, we talk around water coolers, but they talk on CNN, Larry King, and Oprah. We have blogs, but they have bestsellers. And most pastors have small pulpits and platforms, but they have megachurches, and their platforms are the airwaves. But here's what they don't have. We have the power of the Holy Ghost on our side. John Wesley once said, Give me 100 men who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God, and I care not whether they be clergymen or laymen. They alone will shake the gates of hell, and they will set up the kingdom of heaven on earth. Let me ask you this. How many people did Yeshua need to start the movement that we call Christianity? He needed 12. I mean, just think about that. Today, there are 2.6 billion Christians. Originally, there was 12. Later on in future studies, we will read in the letter to the Church of Philadelphia this, Revelations 3.8, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. Thou hast the little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. You see, it is not our job to say how God will use what we do for him or how he will take our little strength and make it strong. We just need to keep his word. We just need not to deny his name because he will open the doors that Satan cannot shut. He will bring the people who need to hear what you have to say to you. Revelations 2, 4 through 5 says this. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, whence thou hast fallen and repent and do thy first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Now, while the church at Ephesus was mature in its doctrine, they were not childlike in their love. Have you ever seen a child run into the arms of his daddy? He runs with abandon. He runs with confidence, and he doesn't doubt for one moment that daddy won't respond with a giant hug. But as he grows older, he begins to wait just to make sure Daddy isn't doing something important, like watching a football game. Their steps get slower and slower when Mommy says, Daddy had a long day, just give him a moment to unwind first. And then they turn into teenagers, and they are embarrassed to even be seen around him when their friends might be looking. Now on the outside, it appears that this church was doing everything right. They had their doctrines right, they were saying all the right things, but it had become rote. They could recite the scriptures by heart, but it did not come from their heart. And sometimes we can mislead, by eight inches because eight inches is the distance between our heads and our hearts and when that happens a relationship becomes a religion. Isaiah 29:13 says this wherefore the Lord said for as much as these people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me but they have removed their hearts far from me and their fear towards me is taught by the precept of men Now that word fear doesn't mean being afraid it means reverence And it means awe. You know, when we first got saved, it was because we had a revelation of how God was more powerful than our sin. And when we looked at him with such awe, it was because he left eternity to rescue and redeem us. The Bible was so new to us. We would just read it to get closer and closer to him because he was our first love. But as time went on, we started taking shortcuts. And instead of searching for these truths ourselves, we just walked into the nearest Christian bookstore and bought a book by Brother So-and-So. Now, there's nothing wrong with reading a good book on the subject if it's a supplement to our study. Think of it this way. Does a person stop eating just to live off vitamin supplements? And in the same way, you cannot get by on someone else's revelation of God. You can't get by on someone else's Words. A few years ago, my wife and I were moving, and while we were packing up, I found a box in the closet, and it contained notes and poems that I wrote to her when we were high school sweethearts. But do you want to know what wasn't in the box? There was no Hallmark cards that I gave her later on in life. You see, she cherished every sappy word I wrote, because they were my words, not someone else's words that I paid five bucks for. And that's what Yeshua meant by leaving your first love. So how do we show our love for Yeshua? John 14 verse 15 says this, If you love me, keep my commandments. In James 4, 8, it says, Draw nigh unto God, and he will draw nigh unto you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. You see, the first thing we need to do is draw near to God, and then he will draw near to us. We must pursue the one who suffered the cross and the grave to pursue us. 1 John 4:18 through 19 makes this very clear. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. He that feareth him is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. When he tells us to keep his commandments, we can have two different motivations. We can do so because we fear being punished, or we can do so out of love. You see, there is a big difference between saying, I can't do that, Or, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that because I trust in his love. There are reasons why God tells us not to do certain things. Just like there are reasons parents tell their children not to touch hot stoves. And when we begin to see that, then we are protected by his love for us. And then we have a thankful heart. But when we begin to look at his rules as something like, I can't do this and I can't do that, we become prone to a resentful heart. We feel as if he is withholding something from us. Yeshua said that they needed to repent from this way of thinking and return to their first love, to do the things that they used to do, or he would remove their menorah out of its place. As we learned in the first chapter of Revelation, the menorah was a device that burned oil by fire. And we learned that the oil was symbolic of the Holy Ghost, and the fire was symbolic of Yahweh's presence and his glory. And a church is only a building of brick and mortar if the power of the Holy Ghost and his presence is gone. 2 Timothy 3 verse 5 says this, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. You see, there is a power that can change the world. There is a presence to comfort every broken heart. And there is a glory that makes all the world's riches look like poverty. And there is a love bold enough to reveal it. When was the last time you felt it? And when was the last time you shared it? Verse 6 says this, But this thou hast that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, the Bible says that God is love, but here it says that he hates. Is this a contradiction? No, it's not, because the essence of Yahweh is love. That's who he is. But things like justice, compassion, forgiveness, and yes, even hate, are just expressions of that love. Proverbs 13 verse 5 tells us the righteous hate what is false. And Romans twelve nine also tells us love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, but cling to that which is good. Why? Because that which is false and evil causes great hurt to people. And if you love someone, you do not want to see them greatly hurt. Now notice that our love for people must be sincere. Notice how Yeshua says thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, did he say that he hated the Nicolaitan people or the ones who were caught up in their false teachings? No, he hated their deeds. He hated their false teachings. Now, think of how different the world would be if we had a sincere love for people, but we truly hated the things that destroyed them. Now, this was the type of love that the church at Ephesus had for their brothers and sisters, and they would not let the evil teachings of the Nicolaitans put anyone's soul in jeopardy. So who were the Nicolaitans? Irenaeus, an early church leader who could trace his discipleship back to the Apostle John, had this to say about the Nicolaitans, The Nicolaitans are followers of that Nicholas who was one of the first seven ordained to the deaconship by the apostles. They led lives of unrestrained indulgence. The character of these men is very plainly pointed out in the Apocalypse of John. They are represented as teaching that it is a matter of indifference to practice adultery and to eat things sacrificed to idols, Now, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was a form of antinomianism, which basically means that mankind can freely partake in sin because God's law is no longer binding. Now in Ephesus, the choicest cuts of meat were offered to the goddess Artemis. And after that, a portion of the meat was tithed in an occult ritual. And then the remainder of that meat was sold for public consumption. And a part of the price of that meat was also funneled back to the temple of Artemis to pay for its upkeep, to pay for the wages of the priest, and to pay for temple prostitutes. And one of the the ethical and spiritual dilemmas the church had to wrestle with was is it okay to buy and eat meat? that was sacrificed to this idol. Was it okay to pay your money for a product that furthered the occult and spread prostitution? Because prostitution and perversion was a daily part of society back then. And as we discussed at the beginning of our study of Revelations chapter two, if you wanted to hold any real position of power, at the very least, you had to participate in the once a year festival to Artemis. And that festival would conclude with a giant orgy. Now the Nicolaitans taught that because Yeshua had died to forgive their sins, they were free of any condemnation, past, present, or future. Therefore, it was okay to eat food sacrificed to idols just so you could feed yourself. And it was okay to participate in temple orgies so that you could earn a good living. And it was okay to burn incense to the emperor as an act of worship before entering the market so that you could get the best deals possible because salvation had nothing to do with with any of these things. Now this type of hyper grace heresy was very appealing because now people could do what they wanted to without condemnation. Now the heresy of the hyper grace movement is once again making a comeback. Unfortunately, it's coming back even among some of the most well respected conservative Bible teachers and pastors. Now here's a clip from a question and answer session with John MacArthur. John MacArthur is one of the most fundamental preachers in all of America. And he was asked, if God forgives sins, was it okay to take the mark of the beast so that one could survive and eat in the tribulation? Let's listen to his answer.
0: In regard to the latter half of the tribulation period, when, when men would be required to have the mark of the beast in order to buy sell. My question is, uh, once a person takes the mark, is there any possibility of him coming to Christ? Yes. uh, I think, you know, in in the seven-year tribulation coming in the future, we're going to get into this probably a week from Sunday night, maybe this Sunday night, maybe a week. I'm not sure. But um, the tribulation is a seven-year period, right? The rapture of the church, seven-year tribulation, then Christ returns, sets up his kingdom. Now, in that seven-year period, really two things happen. God begins to judge the world with a series of holocausts and at the same time he begins to redeem his people israel and in the process of this the antichrist establishes his rule and in order to function in the economy of the antichrist you have to take the mark of the beast and apparently what's going to happen you take the mark on your hand or on your forehead and we've talked a lot about that, you know, that uh, that that's kind of the computer situation. We're now moving fast toward the time when we're going to have to do everything we do by cards and by numbers and all of that. And uh, uh, those number, the thing about a card that's a problem is you lose it, and they've already devised systems to put the number on your hand and on your forehead, and you go through a scanner, and, you know, that's how you buy and sell. It's automatically deducted from your bank account. Now, the question is, if you're living in the tribulation period and you take this mark, in other words, you identify with the beast's empire, Will you still be able to be redeemed and I think the answer to that is yes,
1: really. Now, what does the Bible say and teach revelations fourteen nine through eleven tells us this. If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or in his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of his holy angels and in the presence of the lamb and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whosoever receives the mark of his name. Now, there is absolutely no difference between taking the mark of the beast to survive and eating food sacrificed to idols. And God hates when we pollute the message of his love and his grace with our sin, just for our own benefit or convenience, especially when Yeshua put aside his own convenience and died a horrifying death on the cross to win us that salvation. Now, the biblical message of grace is wonderful, glorious, and life-transforming. The Apostle Paul taught this fact in his letter to the church at Ephesus. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says this, For by grace are ye saved, through faith, And it is not of yourself. It is the gift of God. Now they got that message. They knew that there was no way that they could earn that forgiveness. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But they also knew that there was a counterbalance to that message. And they didn't for one minute believe that the Holy Spirit stopped convicting people of their sin. This heresy teaches that you never need to confess confess your sins to God or repent because we are perfect in his sight or worse yet we can continue in an active state of sin one hypergrace teacher wrote this when god looks at me he doesn't see me through the blood of christ he sees me cleansed likewise he sees us as holy and righteous he sees us and he loves what he sees Did Jesus love what he saw when he rebuked five of the seven churches in Revelations 2-3? Or why did he say to the church in Ephesus, Yet this I have against you that you have forsaken your first love. And why did he say to the church at Sardis, I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in my sight. Therefore, remember what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. Or why does he call the believers in Laodicea wretched pitiful, poor, blind, and naked? Why didn't he say, I see you as beautiful, healthy, and rich? And why did Jesus say, those who I love, I rebuke and discipline? So be earnest and repent. Romans 11:12 says this, Behold, therefore, the goodness and the severity of God on them which fell severity, but towards thee, goodness. If thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou shalt also be cut off. Now it is because of God's grace and goodness that he forgives us, that he saves us. And it is because his mercy that he deals with us as a father would who loves his child. And he doesn't deal with us with the severity of judgment that he has in store for those who have not accepted the free gift of salvation. Titus 2:11 through 14 says this, "'For the grace of God that bringeth us to salvation has appeared unto all men.'" teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God, our Savior, Yeshua the Messiah, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works the best analogy that i can give you is this the holy spirit convicts our conscience when we sin and that conviction is for our benefit because the glorious appearing of the great god and our savior yeshua the messiah is truly drawing near. Now, if you were walking barefoot on a sandy beach and a piece of razor sharp glass mixed in with the sand, cut one of your feet, you could be potentially in real danger. But because we feel pain in our nerves, we say, hey, there's some sort of pain here. Maybe I should check the spot where it's hurting. But if we lose feelings in our nerves, we would never feel that pain and we would never check out where it hurts. And because of that, we could potentially bleed to death and die. And that is why the Spirit of God pricks your conscience. That is why it wrestles and strives with us over sin. Because the wages of sin is death, and we will always reap what we sow. But thank God that he doesn't just give up or take our salvation away just because we sin once or twice or because we stumble in sin. You see, it's not about how many times you fall down or about how many times you get knocked down by the devil. It's about how many times that you get back up and fight to live a righteous life. Now, the devil knows that we can overcome, but he also knows that God said, my spirit will not always strive and wrestle with man. Satan knows that if he can get us to fall for a hyper grace message, then we will be so oblivious to the fact that we've fallen in the first place. Now, Satan wants to take away the power of God in your life. It's the same power that can defeat him. The same power that looses every chain of oppression. Because Satan knows that true power only comes through a life of humbleness and submission to God. An attitude where we're honest about our sins and our weaknesses. Isaiah 40:29 says this. He gives power to the weak and to those that have no might, he increases strength. Man, what an awesome and powerful promise. Please don't let anyone steal it from you. Verse 7 says this. He that hath an ear let him hear what the spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh I will give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now the first thing he says is this, if you have an ear hear what the spirit is saying. Do you know that the spirit of God actually desires to speak to you? God wants to have fellowship and communicate with us. And you really can't have a relationship with him unless there's true dialogue. Now, we get to know people by communicating with them, by talking and listening. And it's the same with our relationship with God. You see, if you set aside time to commune with God, he will speak to you. And he promises that we can hear his voice. John 10:27 says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now, let's take a look at some of the ways that he will speak to us. Second Timothy 3.16 says this. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in all righteousness. Scripture is the main way we hear the voice of God because it is the main way that the Holy Spirit gives inspiration. Absolutely everything God says to you will never contradict what the Bible says. Now, if we take the time to study his word, we will be able to gain the mind of our Messiah in any situation. Now, another way he speaks to us is through speaking to our minds, our hearts, and our conscience. Hebrews 8.10 says this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them upon their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. Colossians 3.15 also says this Let the peace of the Messiah rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Deep inside of us, if we have been born again, there is a deep sense of right and wrong. Have you ever been in a situation where you knew that what you were about to do was wrong? Or how about after doing something that was wrong, you felt remorse? Or how about when doing something that pleases God, you felt peace? That is the Spirit of God speaking to you. And the more you study the Word of God, the more you sharpen that voice in your mind. You are actually sharpening that Holy Ghost intuition. Now, following that voice can save you a lot of pain and heartache, and it can also rescue you from feelings of worry and doubt. It can keep you out of a lot of trouble and danger that the devil may have planned for you because demonic entities are masters of deception. And they have many temptations and traps to snare a child of God. And they do this to sow the seeds of sin in our life because they know that ungodly choices bring ungodly consequences. Now, demonic powers have two main reasons for getting us to fall into sin. And the first reason is that demonic powers have plans for the world that we live in. They have plans for the country that we live in. In. They have plans for the state that we live in, they have plans for the city that we live in, and they even have plans for the very neighborhoods we live in. You see, we tend to underestimate how truly organized they really are. They are very territorial, and they have very intricate plans and schemes. For instance, they could have discerned the fact that your teenage next-door neighbor has a call from God on his life to be a missionary, and that if he ends up fulfilling that call, one day it could wreak havoc on Satan's plan for what he's doing in Africa. And because of that, demons get very nervous that that kid has you, a spirit-filled Christian living next door, and they don't know how God might use you to help him, or worse yet, be led by the Holy Ghost to pray for him. See, you are the X factor, and they don't want to deal with you, so they may preemptively strike at you to you get you to fall into sin, because they know that sin grieves the Spirit of God. They know that it short-circuits our power, and depending on what we do, it can even remove the hedge of protection that God has placed around us. Now, the second reason they want to destroy us is the simple fact that they just hate us, because we were made in the image of the One who created us. But we have a powerful weapon, the law of our Creator, in our hearts and in our minds. And our spirit-filled conscience will either send up warning signs of dangers, or confidence and peace when confronted with situations, temptations, and choices. And when we combine the words of God written on our heart with the physical written word of God, there is no situation that we cannot navigate. Now, another way that God speaks to us is through godly, wise counsel. Proverbs 11:14 says this: "Where no counsel is, the people fall." But, in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Now every Christian should have people in their lives that they can seek out the counsel from. These people should be able to seek God and hear his voice concerning your situation and either give you confirmation or guidance. Matthew 18:16 says this: by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact May be confirmed. Now, the Holy Ghost knows that there is safety in numbers and that absolutely no one can exist on a spiritual island by themselves. Now, next, the Spirit can use prophetic means to speak to us, and these would include dreams and visions, words of knowledge, words of wisdom, or even personal prophecies. Acts 2.17 says this, And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. First Thessalonians five, nineteen through twenty-one also says, Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully and hold fast to that which is good. Now, I know that this may seem like a spooky subject, but keep in mind that the very verse that we're studying in the book of Revelations came about because John was having a series of prophetic visions. And this verse says, don't quench the spirit, don't limit the spirit, and don't despise these prophetic means of communication, either because you don't understand their purposes, or worse yet, you feel too intellectual for them. But it's important that you always check out any prophetic dream, vision or word of prophecy because demonic spirits and entities love to counterfeit these situations but the key to seeing if something truly is from god is to examine everything you see or hear then hold fast to that which is good. To do this, we use the other three means of hearing the voice and the Spirit of God. We ask ourselves, does this prophetic word, dream, or vision line up with the scripture? Because it always will. You will always be able to find the message or the dream or the vision or what's behind it in the scripture and you'll usually be able to find it in two or three places. Next, ask yourself, does this make sense in your mind and your heart? Do you feel peace with what you were told or shown do you understand? Do you have a leading that it was from God or do red warning flags go up and you have a very uneasiness in your spirit over it? But most importantly, always share it with the ones who you go to get counsel from. Ask them, what do they think? Ask them to pray about it. Ask them to seek God so that they can give you And answer, if you use these three witnesses, it will be confirmed to you. Now, the most difficult part of hearing God is the fact that it actually takes time to learn to discern God's voice. And doing this takes a very humble heart. Jeremiah 29:12 through 13 says this, and then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Now we can't make demands on Yahweh. We can't yell at the sky and say, "God, I demand that you speak to me now. I demand to hear your voice." But in humility, we can ask, seek, and knock. And the Bible promises that God will open up the door and we will hear him. We must never lose sight of that wonderful privilege. Honor him with the type of gratitude that always obeys what he says. Now, before we finish verse 7, let's take a few moments to summarize what was on Yeshua's heart. As we close this letter. Now, he was proud that his church was a church that contended for the truth of the gospel, and they would not let false teachers spread their corrupt doctrines. But we see that the main challenge for believers is to maintain a fervent love for the Lord. You see, if we lose the love for the Lord, our desire to be intimate with him, to meet with him in prayer and fellowship, then we will lose the ability to hear his voice and to be guided by him. Now, this could lead to their lampstand or menorah being removed. Why? Because the main purpose of a lamp is to contain the oil that was set on fire. And the real purpose of the church is to be a vessel filled by the Holy Spirit, to be set ablaze by his love, because only then can the church be a true witness in a dark world. Now we come to the final verse in this letter. Revelations 2.7 says this, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him who overcometh, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. You see, Yeshua makes a promise to us. If we overcome, we will eat of the tree of life. Now this harkens back to the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve were told that they could eat of any tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But you know, there's another supernatural tree in that garden, and it's the tree of life. And its fruits could sustain a person with eternal life. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were kicked out of the garden, and they no longer had access to the tree of life. Now, this was an act of mercy, and it was for Adam's protection. We read in Genesis 3.22, And now, lest he put forth his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat that he may live forever. You see, God was protecting them from that moment, from eating from that tree, because Satan hoped that they would eat of that tree next after they sinned. Because if they did and they gained that eternal life, then they would be sealed in an everlasting state of eternal sin. And they would basically become like the fallen angels, unable to be redeemed, just like Satan was. And then he would be the ruler over mankind forever. But you see, when God allowed mankind to face death, he was actually showing his deep mercy because allowing man to face death gives him a fixed time on earth to find salvation, a fixed time on earth to weigh his soul in the light of eternity. Because of sin, Adam had to spend his life in hardship and toil just to possess the basic needs of life. Genesis 3.16 says this, Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. You see, before the fall, they worked in the garden in ease, but now it was cursed. But it was cursed for our sake, not because God was being vindictive it is through the toil of our lives that we work hard to achieve everything that we need and then when we can properly understand it we look back upon it all and in places we don't want to admit exists we find ourselves unfulfilled and then we start to wonder is there something more to this life than this tom brady the quarterback for the new england patriots was asked if they didn't win the super bowl would that make the season meaningless And he candidly replied, look, I have three Super Bowl rings, but there's got to be something more out there, more than just football in a perfect season. I just don't know what that is yet. God desires to step in, to woo people to himself, to say, I am the thing that you are missing. I am the thing that you are looking for. That God-shaped hole in your heart is not there by accident. I long to fill it. You see, that is why he cursed the soil. He did so that we would see that life was but a vapor when we compared our souls to eternity. Now i've often wondered if the technology that we create so that we can have an easier way of life has somehow lessened this holy discontent that was to be a spiritual benefit to us now later on in this verse, we are promised that if we overcome that we will finally be able to eat of the tree of life as originally intended in revelations twenty two two through three we find out that when the curse in the garden has finally been reversed and the spiritual reset button has been pushed on god's creation, that tree of life Life will once again be there now, the passage says this in the midst of the street of it, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruits every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healings of the nation, and there shall be no more curse but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him so the real question is how do we get there how do we overcome well, that word overcome in the Greek language means to subdue. You see, there are many Christian how-to books on how to subdue the devil, but they miss the mark big time because this isn't about subduing the devil. It's about subduing ourselves. You see, the only power that Satan has over us, the only inroads that he has is that which we give him. Now, we learned this lesson in the Garden of Eden because we fell because we gave heed to the devil. So how do we overcome the desires of sin, the lust of the flesh, the lust for power, fame, sex, money, greed, or whatever we want to do with our lives instead of what God wants us to do with them? Galatians 5:16 has the answer. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Now, everything is tied back to the main message of the letter. It is about walking in the Holy Spirit. It is about the oil of the Holy Ghost that is set ablaze by love. You see, we see this represented by the menorah or the candlestick. And the menorah sat in the inner court of the temple. And in the layout of the temple, we see the key to victory. Now, the temple consisted of three parts— First, there was the outer court. Here the people would gather. And then beyond that, you would enter into the inner court, Here's where the priest ministered before the Lord. Here's where the vessels like the menorah were kept. And then beyond that, you would enter into a veiled secret room, and it was called the Holy of Holies, and only the high priest could enter into there. The Ark of the Covenant was kept in the Holy of Holies, and upon the Ark's cover or mercy seat rested the very presence of God. Now, the movement of the presence and power of God started in the Holy of Holies. Then that power moved through the inner court, and then it finally came into the outer court where the people received it. Now, this is a picture of the Christian life and our walk with Yahweh. The Bible says that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And like the temple, we are made up of three parts, the body, which is our physical self, the soul, which is our hearts and minds, and the spirit, which is the real us, the part that leaves our body when we die. Now, most of the time, when we think of overcoming self, we start with trying to overcome our flesh by modifying our desires or by denying ourselves something. But when we try to overcome our flesh First, we seldom gain victory and we fall over and over again. But let's remember this verse. This I say then, walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Lasting victory starts in that secret place, the holy of holies, where the spirit of God dwells. When we cultivate victory in the times where we seek to strengthen our relationship with Yeshua, then victory moves from the realm of the spirit to the realm of the soul, which is our mind and our intellect. Then over time, we find our mind begins to change about the needs and the wants of our flesh. And when our mind is changed, then the victory finally flows from that place of relationship with the Holy Spirit and Yeshua, from the inner court to the outer court. Now you can see how the devil tries to get this whole process twisted. He tries to get you to start Outwardly and work inwardly, but we must start inwardly and work outwardly from the secret place of God. Matthew 6 6 says this But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut the door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly now if you want the open victory you must get the secret victory first and isn't it interesting how yeshua ties this all into the life of a tree ask yourself how much money do people of faith spend on books programs dvds spiritual conferences and things like that just to grow in the christian life but look at the tree the tree will grow all by itself provided it is in the right environment, provided that it has light, soil, and water. And when you live in the right spiritual environment, when you plant yourself in the will of God, when you meditate on the light of his word and let the living water of the Holy Spirit flow through you, it is impossible not to grow. And just like trees don't grow up overnight, we mature over time also. So it is important not to lose that love or passion for Yeshua, the passion that we have for living in that spiritual place of growth, because the Bible promises in Galatians 6, 9, for in due season, we shall reap if we faint not. Now let's look at the second of our churches. Smyrna was a large harbor city on the Aegean Sea that had over 100,000 residents, and it was one of the most beautiful cities in Asia Minor. In the ancient world, it was called the Crown of Asia, and on its coins were inscribed first in beauty first in size and it hosted the largest stadium in Asia Minor and it could seat up to 20,000 people. Now Smyrna had been a Greek colony as far back as 1000 BC and in 600 BC the city was invaded and completely destroyed by the Lydians and for 400 years there was absolutely no city at all then around 200 BC it was rebuilt and brought back to life no doubt one of the reasons Yeshua says that he is the one who is dead and lives again is to encourage them that he is greater than anything that they may encounter living in Smyrna. Smyrna was also one of the most patriotic and religious cities in the Roman Empire. It was the first city to erect a temple to the goddess Romana and to the spirit of Rome. If Ephesus could be likened unto the city of New York, then Smyrna could be likened unto the city of Texas because of its bold patriotism and its in-your-face religious beliefs. Now, all were required by law to worship at the pagan temple Temple of Romana, and each year they were required to burn incense on the altar for Caesar. Now, Christians who refused to participate in this were considered criminals of the state, and they were burned at the stake or they were killed by wild beasts in the Colosseum. Now, because of this mixture of Roman patriotism and devotion to Caesar, being a follower of Yeshua in Smyrna was the most dangerous place to live for a believer. Now, please take a moment, if you will, to put yourself in the shoes of one of these believers. You You know, every year we look forward to things like our birthday or maybe even a favorite holiday. We tend to circle it on the calendar. We prepare for it. We send out cards and invitations. But imagine circling a date on your calendar each year where you would have to choose between denying your God or dying. I mean, any day in Smyrna, could get you killed for following Yeshua. But imagine circling the day where each year you would more than likely die. And if that happened, how would you live? And what would you do? Would you even stay in Smyrna or would you just get up and leave? Or for that matter, what made any of them stay in the city? Well, I'll tell you something. It was a love for the lost in that city. It was a love to see the gospel of Yeshua preached. They weren't going to just up and leave and leave the devil to have his way. They also had a tremendous love for their brothers and sisters in Yeshua. If they were going to stay, then everyone would stay. It was one for all and all for one. And because of that, persecution didn't really matter because it was Yeshua's responsibility to care for and sustain. In the church. Now, here's the interesting thing. Smyrna is the only city of the seven to survive into modern times, and today it's called the city of Izmir, and 30% of its population is Christian. Now, even in the midst of horrible persecution, this church had such a love for evangelizing its city that it's literally still reaching the lost today. We read in Revelations 2 8 this, and unto the angel of the church in Smyrnia write, These things saith the the first and the last he which is dead and is alive now as i've said before the first part of each of these letters start with a revelation and description of yeshua the messiah and the first thing we read is this and unto the angel of the church in smyrna write now that word angel means messenger or pastor so we see that this letter was addressed to the leader of the church of smyrna but we see that yeshua specifically chose to use the word angelos on purpose because the earthly church is tied to the supernatural government of heaven you see the church is not a building it is a body of supernatural believers and just like the angels they minister to god in heaven our prayers also minister and they are before the throne of god both day and night now next we read i am the first and the last which is dead and which is alive now when you're the first you know the past. And when you're the last, you control the future. And that must have been a great comfort to the believers because they knew that when they circled the day that they might die on the calendar each year, that Yeshua had already seen what that day held, and he was in control of their destiny, not Caesar. Besides, Yeshua said he was dead and came back to life. I mean, he experienced the worst that men and Satan could do, and he triumphed over it. Hebrews 2:14 and 15 talks about why Yeshua came to die for us and how he conquered the devil. The verse reads this, For as much then as children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death... He might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now, you may not wake up with a date circled on a calendar when you might die, but let me ask you, have you ever woke up with a temptation? Have you ever woke up with a bondage circled on the calendar that day? And what is the fear that you always face? What is the struggle that you know the devil is going to tempt you with again today? Have you ever wondered if today would be the day that you finally gain victory? over flesh and the devil. So may I take a moment to encourage you? It says that through Yeshua's death, he destroyed the one who had the power of death. So he is able to save and help you because of his very own blood and because of his very own death. Hebrews 7.25 says this, wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing that he ever liveth to make intercession for them. You see, that's right, right now. Now he is making intercession for you. He is standing for you. He is praying for your victory and he has assigned angels to minister and war for you in the heavenly realms. He is the first and he is the last. And the Bible says that he was there when he put you together in your mother's womb. And if he is your Lord, he will be there to welcome you into his presence when you die. And he will be there in between helping you fulfill the plan that he had for your life when he formed you and he placed you you into this generation the bible says for such a time as this and that my friends is a promise you can write down and circle on the spiritual calendar of the days of your life now let's read verse 9 i know thy works and tribulation and poverty but thou art rich and i know the blasphemy of them that say they are jews and are not but are the synagogue of satan Now, Yeshua knows three things about this church. He knows their works tribulation, and poverty. Now, most of the time, Bible studies focus on these three works. And it's true, I could devote the rest of this study going into great detail about why it's important to work for God. And I could talk about the tribulation and persecution of Christians. And I could also wax eloquent on how true riches are found in Yeshua and not the wealth of man. But I want to focus on the fact that Yeshua said he knew these three things. you see the word "no" in the Greek language is the word "Ido and it means to see something, to pay attention to it, to inspect it, or examine it. Now take a moment and think about that. You see, I can only know if a piece of fruit is good by stopping and examining it. Now, in the same way, our Messiah is interested in the quality of our works, our resolve in the face of tribulation, and our desire for spiritual riches. You see, when Yeshua engaged the scribes and the Pharisees who claimed that they were part of the synagogue of the righteous, he always took them to task about the true desires of their heart. And he never really questioned the fact that they did all these so-called good works or that they fast to show that they were truly spiritually poor. No, he inspected their hearts. He examined the real reason why they did all these things. But in Matthew 23, 5, he says of them, but all their works they do for to be seen of men. However, in reality, they forgot that while they were doing all these works, that they were really being seen by God. And not only were they being seen, but their very hearts were being inspected. Now we need to ask ourselves, why do we do the things that we do? And let's be honest. Because five out of the seven churches in the book of Revelation received a rebuke by Yeshua, but two did not. And Smyrna was one of the ones that didn't. You see, they had not left their first love. They were not lukewarm. The Lord didn't want to spit them out of their mouth. You see, in reality, they were not poor. They were spiritually rich. They were real and not fake. Now, they had the chance to deny Yeshua and save their lives. They had the chance to make deals with the Roman government so that they could have an easy life. And they had a chance to join the synagogue of Satan because, you see, the religious Jews led by the Pharisees. Had a political deal worked out with the government in Smyrnia. And because they submitted themselves to the rule of the government and advanced the government's agenda in public and never spoke negatively about the government while preaching in their synagogues, they were allowed to worship their God and not have to burn that pinch of incense. I mean, after all, there's no need to make a person bow their knee in public when you own their hearts in private. But here's the thing. Because the early church had not divorced their faith from the Hebrew culture yet, they looked very similar to the religious pharisaical Jews. And the Pharisees worried that they would be mistaken for these Messianic Jews, so they spread lies about them. They accused them of cannibalism because they claimed to eat the body and drink the blood of Yeshua when they took communion. And they also reported to the government where the house churches met. And they caused a lot of Christians to die. And because of that, Yeshua regarded the murderous Pharisees of Smyrna in the same way he did when he was on earth john 8:44 says this about them ye are of your father the devil and the lusts of your father Ye will do, for he was a murderer from the beginning, and that's why he called them the synagogue of Satan. You see, we have the choice to be real or fake in our faith. We have the choice to pledge our allegiance to religion, the government, or the pursuit of riches, or we can bow our knees and our hearts to the king, his kingdom, and the pursuit of godliness. We can choose to worship in the temple of Satan, or we can choose to be the temple of the Holy Ghost, and we can be a person who Yeshua will not rebuke when we stand before him but only if we are honest with ourselves honest with the fact that he examines our heart honest with the fact that though we may not be perfect we don't have to be like the pharisees and act like we are we can humbly and honestly come to the one who loves us the one who died for us so that we can truly live again verse 10 reads this fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer behold the devil shalt cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Now we have already established in the last two studies the tremendous danger that the believers in Smyrna lived under. They lived under the constant threat of persecution, prison, Or even death. And I don't know about you, but I couldn't tell you that I wouldn't be looking over my shoulder every time I passed by two people and they started whispering to each other. Or even if I would truly be able to witness to someone if I knew there was even a 25% chance that they would turn me in. You see, fear has a way of making us think twice about doing the things we normally know that we should do. And most of all, the devil knows this. He knows that if he can cause us to fear, he can get us to rethink our plans of action, and he only needs a moment of worry, a small pause in our resolve to sow that one small seed of doubt into our minds. Now, Satan's been at war with Yahweh for a very long time, and he is a master strategist, and he knows how to slow play his hand. You see, he has had history as his teacher. He has seen what tactics work and which tactics don't. He knows that the real threat of persecution is a weapon that he can use to silence some of the believers and to get them to draw back their efforts to advance the kingdom of God. And he has had much success with this tactic in the past. I mean, how many Jews and minorities died in Germany when the Lutheran and Catholic churches refused to take a stand against Hitler just because they feared persecution? But there have also been many times where this plan has backfired against him. Look at how the persecution in China caused revival and the growth of the Christian church instead of stamping it out. Now, here in verse 10, we have been given insight into the mind of his demonic plan. It says, And the devil shall cast some of you into prison. The first thing we have to understand was that it was not God's plan to persecute the church. It was Satan's plan. And here in Smyrna, the devil had spent many years setting up the necessary framework for the church to be persecuted. You see, the Roman society had been so consumed with drunkenness, sexual perversion, and a morbid desire to see bloodshed for sport that they had become completely desensitized to the voice of evil. And they hated the fact that Christians spoke out against their their sin. So they were all the more willing to silence that voice. And it was against this backdrop that Satan felt it was worth the gamble to try to bring persecution against them. Now, we don't know from history what exactly this specific attack was mentioned here in this chapter, but we do know that God put a very specific limit on how long that event would last. This attack would only last 10 days, not a day, an hour, or even a minute more. And he allowed it for only one reason. Verse 10 clearly says that he allowed it so that we could be tried. The purpose God allows testing is for us and us alone. You see, God doesn't need to test us for his benefit. He already knows what we're going to do when we face persecution. He is all-knowing. He knows if we're going to pass or fail that test in advance. The testing is for our benefit. It's to show us what's in our hearts, to give us the opportunity to be real with ourselves and the faith that we claim to have. Testing gives us the opportunity to do an honest, moral inventory of our hearts. It also gives us the opportunity to see that he is faithful to keep the promises that he made to us during the times of persecution. Now, as the study draws to a close this week, I want to try to be very honest and clear with you. Satan is no longer deciding if persecution will work against the church. Instead, he is working on how that persecution will work against us. You see, he has spent the last century setting up a very similar plan of destruction. Our society has embraced many of the same sins that Rome once did, and they don't like it when we speak out against those sins. So when they begin to silence our voices, God in his anger will give them over to a reprobate mind, and this will open up the door for Satan to have the legal authority to start destroying everything on the face of the earth. Now, Satan's plan of evil and destruction is so devastating that Yahweh in his mercy will set a time limit on it. Now, Matthew 24, 22 tells us about this time limit. And except those days be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Did you catch that? No flesh would be saved unless... Yahweh steps in and shortens those days. Now, can you or I truly say that we grasp the gravity of that statement? If not, I want to say this as plainly as possible and in as much love as possible. We would be complete and utter fools if we did not take the opportunity to do an honest moral inventory of our hearts right now before the fear of the day of the Lord comes. Luke twenty one twenty six speaks about this time when it says men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming upon the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Now, I have witnessed to people about the day when all of mankind will have to choose between taking the mark of the beast or being beheaded, and I can't tell you how many times people who were not saved said something very similar to the following. Well, I grew up religious, and if someone called the Antichrist comes along and threatens to chop my head off, then I'll know what the Bible says is true, and I'll give my life to God, and then I'll let him kill me. At that point, my heart breaks because I know that that will never happen. You see, if a person cannot live for Yeshua now when it costs them almost nothing, how will they do it when it costs them everything? Man, there are just some things that we need to settle in our hearts right now. The time to love Yeshua more than our own lives is now and not then. Did you know that in Iran, the Christian church sets aside time every few months to role play what would happen if the government broke into one of their services and at gunpoint threatened everyone with death if they refused to convert to Islam? They want that crown of life, the crown that comes with being faithful even unto death. Charles Spurgeon, the famous revivalist preacher, once said something that always stuck with me, and I want to finish this week's study by simply reading to you this quote. He said this, the best way to live above the fear of death is to die every morning before you leave your bedroom. Verse 11 says this, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt by the second death. You see, the letter to the church at Smyrna closes with the admonition that it would be wise to take some time and listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit, because after all, he is still speaking to us some 2,000 years after this letter was written, and he's still asking us to think about our souls and to think about eternal life. Unless a person is raptured, we will all face life after death. Hebrews 9.27 says this, It is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. You see, we're currently immortal souls wrapped in mortal bodies of flesh. And that is because back when mankind was created in the Garden of Eden, Yahweh did something different to us than he did with all of his other creation. He didn't speak Adam into existence. No, he formed him from the ground in his image. And he breathed an eternal, immortal soul into him. And when this body dies, our soul, the real eternal us, returns to stand before Yahweh to give an account of the life that we had lived. Romans 14.10 says this, We must all stand before the judgment seat of the Messiah. And then in Romans 14.12, it goes on to further say, So then every one of us shall give an account of himself unto God. That is why we would do well to take a moment and listen to what the spirit is saying, because he is saying that there is a day coming when we will have to give an account of our lives. So we should ponder now what that account will read. And it's so important that we do this now on this side of eternity, because there is a second death. And that second death is eternal death, where we are separated from Yahweh in hell. Now, many people, when they think of hell, think of this place of unspeakable evil and horror and wonder why a loving God would create it. And that is a theological question that most people could spend hours unfolding. But I want to try to briefly explain it this way. I believe that life is a series of choices, causes, and effects, and for life to have any true meaning, to have choices really truly matter, there has to be an impact tied to those choices. You see, God is love, and he proved that fact, in that while we were yet sinners, Yeshua died for us. He made a way for us to overcome, as we read about in verse 11, but he will not Force us to overcome. He will not force us to be with Him, to live for Him, nor will He force us to spend one minute in eternity with Him when we were not willing to spend this brief vapor of a life for Him right here and right now. You see, there is a place that was made as a prison dwelling for the devil and his fallen ones. They too chose not to spend eternity with Yahweh in heaven, and that prison place was called hell it was never created for mankind but if we choose not to follow yeshua into heaven hell is the only other destination left it is a place where god said that he would not dwell where its inhabitants would be forever separated from his presence why is hell such a horrible place because in hell there is no love because god is love In hell, there is no peace, because God is peace. In hell, there is no joy, because God is joy. In hell, there is only torture, because the Lord is healing. In hell, there is only prison, because Yeshua is our freedom. But see, there is good news because we can be with God. We can be one of those overcomers that have eternal life and not be hurt by the second death. So the question really is this, how do we overcome? 1 John 5, 4-5 through says this, For whosoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth Yeshua is the Son of God. And that, my friends was the promise that the church at Smyrna clung to. Because the bloodthirsty Roman government was laying its threats at the doorstep of the church, saying, we will overcome you, we will jail you, we will kill you. But praise God, the one who lives in us is eternal, as we are eternal. And he cannot be overcome, jailed, or killed. And he holds out that victory for all those who would choose to partake of it. So as we close out this letter, let me ask you, have you listened to the Spirit? Have you weighed your soul in the light of eternity? Have you believed in the only Son of God, Yeshua the Messiah? Has His blood covered your sins? Have you hid your life in His life? Thank you for studying this letter to the Church of Smyrna with me. Mm -hmm. As this week's episode draws to a close, I want to share with you how you can find freedom from this world's system of slavery to sin. The very first thing that we must understand is that in this world, everyone is a slave to sin. We all have sinned and we all have fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. The Bible says that we're rebels, we're criminals. We've broken God's law. We are locked in a spiritual prison. And we are very much prisoners of war. We're caught between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And Satan has legal rights to steal, to kill, and to destroy because of the fall. He steals from us our hope. We look around at this prison and we think we will never escape. He destroys our lives in the darkness and ultimately he will succeed in killing many souls as they follow him to hell. But the gospel or the good news of the kingdom is that through the finished work of Christ revealed in his death, burial and resurrection, there is redemption. There is restoration and there is freedom offered by God to each and every person who would receive Christ as the king of the spiritual kingdom. King Jesus came to earth. He lived the sin-free life that we could never live. He died the death that we deserve to die. And he rose from the dead triumphantly, and he has the keys to hell and death. And he has the keys to your prison cell and he offers you the freedom that only he can offer because he alone can bind up the brokenhearted. He alone proclaims liberty to the captives and he alone opens the door to the prison and he looses all who are bound. 2,000 years ago, in that one moment of redemption, every single prison cell was opened. God made a way through Jesus for everyone to potentially escape. But here's the problem. Most of us have stopped right there. We've stopped right there with the gospel. We may have heard the story. We may have heard the good news. But we sit there still in this dark cell and we're like, oh, wow, isn't it amazing? He died for me. I can be free. I can be forgiven. My prison door can swing wide open forgiveness is available he provides for me a way of escape but you have to stand up you have to walk out and boldly approach the throne of grace you have to surrender to the king repent of your sins and trust christ to absolutely save you ask the holy spirit to grant you the power to do that Ask him to soften your heart so that you can see sin as God sees it. Ask him to trouble your heart with godly sorrow over the times where you broke his laws. And from the honesty of your own heart, in your own words, call out to Jesus to save you. And step out by faith and say, I am free. Confess Christ as your Savior before men and lay down your old life And put on his new life instead. Today is the day of salvation. Today you can switch allegiances. You can accept the terms of heavenly surrender. You can leave the kingdom of darkness. And begin to walk in the newness of life. And never turn back. Now if I can help you further. Either by talking with you more about the salvation that Jesus offers you. Or if I can encourage you to take the next step in living a sold-out, radical kingdom life for Him, please visit OmegaFrequency.com and click on the navigational link entitled Salvation. From there, you're going to find a button that says, Please Help Me Take the Next Step. And if you use it, I'll be able to communicate with you specifically about this matter. Well, as always, I want to thank you once again for taking the time to download this week's episode. It has truly been my honor to be able to spend time with you this week and to discuss the things of Yeshua and his coming kingdom with you. Until next time, may Yahweh bless thee and keep thee. Have you ever wondered how the earliest followers of Christ would have addressed the core issues facing us today? Well, join me, Phil Baker, for a discussion on how we can simply follow the words of Christ and apply His message to our lives. Listen to my podcast, Reclaiming the Faith, on iTunes or reclaimingthefaith.podbean.com. Thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please consider sharing it with someone else. Our full podcast archives, along with their original show notes, can be found online at omegafrequency.com. Now until next time, this is BDK reminding you that we don't need to fear the future. Because in the end, Yeshua wins.